Okay. Last week, prior to discussing what uh, I've described as an inserted chapter, uh, a kind of a commentary, chapter 10 of Revelation, we ended with uh, kind of a long, rough reading of some Old Testament passage that relate to the kingdom of God. We talked about the kingdom of God, what it was, and it's kind of an important uh, topic relative to the book of Revelation because that's what it's all about, the, the kingdom of God coming upon the earth whether that's a material kingdom in the future or a spiritual kingdom in the past is up to debate. Within Christianity, the bookends of the Bible, we have Genesis starting us off and we have Revelation. Those are considered the bookends of scripture. They contain uh, prophecy points in Genesis and fulfillment in Revelation. And they're worth some consideration before we continue on in chapter 10. So I think this examination is important to students of the Bible, but it's particularly vital to the fulfillment perspective, meaning the Bible's complete, fulfilled, um, because I suggest that this entire book's material events and promises have been completed, and the book of Revelation is describing the completion of all of them uh, that have existed from the beginning to the end. Uh, that God, through Jesus Christ, has accomplished everything he set out to do. Uh, and you, when I say that, along the way, you have to ask yourself, well, do I believe that? Has God accomplished everything that he set out to do in and through uh, Adam and Eve, uh, Abraham, the nation of Israel, Jesus, the apostles? Has he brought everything back into place that was established in the Garden of Eden uh, before the fall? Um, and if he has, has he done this spiritually or has he done it materially? And therefore, all the principles of the Bible, are they spiritually mandated or are they materially mandated still? Many people believe the New Testament because it hasn't been fulfilled, is a continuation of the material church until the spiritual kingdom actually does fall. Other people believe that it is completely fulfilled in through God, through Christ, and uh, that's me. So let's kick today off by comparing some of the prophetic contents of the first book in Genesis to, uh, to the end book of Revelation and see what it has to say in terms of fulfillment. First, we note that in the first two chapters of Genesis, there is no devil mentioned. The first two chapters of Genesis, we don't have a ha-satan. Uh, he is absent from the picture. It's very interesting. What's more interesting is that in the fulfillment book in Revelation, uh, the devil is absent from the last two chapters. So we have Genesis starting off, two chapters, nothing about Satan. We have Revelation, last two chapters, nothing about Satan. In between, Satan's realm and reign. Uh, we recall that the third chapter of Genesis, that it says at verse 15, God says, I will put hatred between thee and the woman the seed between, excuse me, between thy seed and her seed, it shall crush thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. This is an announcement of what the fate of Satan would ultimately be by God through the seed, singular seed of the woman, Jesus. He will crush Satan's head. And now there are people who say, uh, no, he hasn't crushed Satan's head. Satan is still alive today, ruling and reigning and taking captive prisoners, and that would infer Jesus hasn't had the victory. 
that uh, Satan continues to have victories over uh, the, the world that Jesus came to save. I would say that's incorrect. The fulfillment of scripture says otherwise. The fulfillment says that when Jesus comes, he and Satan and his angels in hell will be cast into the lake of fire. That has either happened or it hasn't. I would suggest it has. So uh, we then read in chapters 12 and 20 of Revelation where this is carried out. Uh, now remember that Satan was called the accuser in scripture and this was his primary job uh, in the heavens but it seems to me that if or since Jesus has both fulfilled the law and the prophets again since Jesus has fulfilled the law and the prophets that Satan's ability to accuse in the absence of the law which has been fulfilled has been substantially diminished and it seems to me that if or since Jesus has overcome sin and death has he overcome sin and death or has he not? If he has overcome sin and death, paying for them and overcoming them once and for all, Satan's purpose and power is done. And it makes that complete. What is described in Revelation, it makes it complete. Uh, I don't understand the position people take in praising and rejoicing in Jesus' finished work and being so happy for Jesus and him, the second Adam, returning uh, the whole world back to its paradisiacal glory of before the fall and then at the, with the very same mouth maintaining that Satan's still in operation be careful he's going to do this to you he's going to do that to you he's going to take you into hell forever and ever and ever that doesn't say Christ has had the victory that says that he's had sort of a victory but Satan continues to win or the will of man continues to win so, of course, the natural response is that Satan is obviously still around. Look at the conditions of this world. But to this, I think there are two reasonable responses in terms of Scripture. Outside of the fallen angel Satan, outside of Satan's angelic person leaving the presence of God and falling, was a darkness. That darkness supersedes uh, Satan and his power. Satan is not the darkness. He represents the darkness. That darkness is opposition to light has always been. And so that is still an effect in this world. Satan may be cast into the uh, lake of fire, but darkness remains. It always will. As long as there's light, there's going to be shadow and darkness with God being the former. And so uh, human beings without God are certainly capable of tapping in and being prey to that darkness. Uh, but in the end, Christ has had the victory even over that um, and remember, we talked about this, Adam and Eve fell before the fall. Remember, they had already chosen to disobey before they took of the fruit. And if we want to go through that, you can look at those lessons where we talked about it. So there's that. It's interesting that the book of Genesis is kind of the seedbed for all biblical on uh, cosmology. Uh, cosmology is another word meaning the origin and development of heaven and earth. Genesis, for a Christian, is the cosmological argument for where everything came from. And we note that this describes the beginning. Remember the first words, in the beginning, God. If you're a Christian, if you follow uh, Scripture, if you can accept those first, in the beginning, God, four words, you can accept anything. Uh, if you have trouble with those four words, in the beginning, God, you're going to have trouble with a lot of what's in the Bible. But in the beginning, God, we get our cosmology, where things came from. And it tells us in the beginning, 
God, right? So we note that this describes the beginning. Beginning of what? The beginning of the material universe, it seems. This is what it seems to be talking about. It's not exhaustive. He doesn't give us everything. He doesn't give us hardly anything, to tell you the truth. He just gives us some plain statements from Moses' mouth about our cosmology and where we think everything came from. Paul says that in, it's a mighty chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 at verse 46. Listen to this. Although that which was not first is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. See, so what that tells us is that first in things came the natural, the material, and then the spiritual. And, and so the book of Revelation is the culmination of this cosmology described in Genesis and the introduction of a brand new cosmology, the spiritual. So what I'm saying is Genesis gives us a material cosmology. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. That's the beginning of material cosmology. Paul says the spiritual didn't come first, the material did, then the spiritual. And so if the material is Genesis, the, the, that which came second Revelation is the fulfillment of the material and the completion of the spiritual being put into effect. So one was shakable, and look at the whole biblical account. Everything from the beginning of material creation was uncertain. Everything fell into disarray, sin, chaos, rebellion, idolatry, all the way up until Jesus introduces a change in the heart spiritual change you must be born from above is what he said in order to even see the kingdom of god he introduces the spiritual into the world and then he starts teaching you know you must have the spirit you must have the spirit i'm going to send the spirit to be here when i leave and then the writer of hebrews says everything else is going to get shaken one more time in heaven and on earth so that the only thing that remains is that which cannot be shaken the spiritual remain and then the book of revelation tells us about the culmination of the end of the material getting wiped out with my in every means possible and the introduction of the new heaven and the new earth coming upon us which is the spiritual coming second so those bookends give us the material and the and they give us the spiritual it's really quite fascinating so one contained the old dusty jerusalem made out of stones made out of rocks the new jerusalem came down from heaven is what it says in the gospels the new Jerusalem came down from heaven. There's people who are still waiting for the new Jerusalem to land on us as if it's going to be this brick and mortar Jerusalem. And it's no, it's a spiritual Jerusalem where the inhabitants of it come unto it spiritually, the city of peace. Uh, one was earthly of the earth, but because of Christ, the second entirely of heaven governed from and existing in. It's a new heaven. It's a new earth. It's a new Jerusalem. The old man, material, becomes a new man spiritually. Spiritually. What, what happens to the flesh in that, old, in that new man? It dies with Christ. It is buried in the grave. It is dead. The new man comes to life. Is that new man material? He is not. The new man is spiritually driven. Anytime the old man rises up out of the grave, things go wrong. We need the death of the uh, material, the living of the spiritual. That's what this is all play, playing out for us. So uh, all created by and through Christ, the second Adam. Remember that the first Adam is established on earth in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. 
The first Adam was taken from the ground. He was red. That's what it, Adam is red. He was red-haired probably, red clay. And he was taken from the material earth. And then he returned to the material earth. And his soul resided in Sheol. That, when he died, his soul resided in Sheol, the hidden place, all the way up till the second Adam pops up, right? And the second Adam uh, overcomes sin and death and the grave, and he returned to the earth too, only for three days. That second Adam overcame the material of everything that was established in, Gen in Genesis, and he introduced to us, through him overcoming that grave, the, the, the realms of the spiritual culminating in the book of Revelation. We know, not knowing how to make perfect sense of it all, that in Genesis chapter 1, darkness is discovered. It says, and darkness was found. And the sea is seen, made, created. But in Revelation, there is no more darkness, it says. And uh, there's no more night, it says, not darkness. It says, no more night. And no more sea, it says. So in Genesis, we have the creation of the sea, and darkness is discovered. And in Revelation, we say there's no more night, and the sea is over. Of course, I think that's talking about the brazen sea, which they did washings and ablutions in, but that's another point. We note that Adam is given a helpmeet, Eve, in Genesis chapter 2, uh, 18 through 28, taken from his side. Uh, and that Christ is presented with a bride in Revelation. Adam is given a helpmeet, a bride, so to speak, and, but it's really his, his other half, or however you want to put it. Uh, but perhaps symbolically, uh, Jesus is given his bride and symbolically taken from his side. Do you remember that a, a, a soldier took a sword and stuck it in his side and blood came forward, and his bride are those who are cleansed by the shed blood of Christ. And so we have coming from his side an ability for his bride to sidle up to him and be his in the end. That's what the book of Revelation is talking about. Adam was giving his material bride. Jesus is giving his bride the church, culminating in the book of Revelation. Of course, there's a tree of life in Genesis. There's a tree of life. That's Genesis 2.8. And... Uh, there is a tree of life that is in the uh, book of Revelation and uh, in God's new creation. It's described in Revelation chapter 22 too. That's the very end we read of this new tree. Uh, next one is difficult for some people today because for some reason they want to cling to the idea that sin remains, uh, that death remains. Uh, long before I became a total fulfillment person, before I even knew about preterism, uh, I could see from Scripture, this is what started me on that trail, that sin had to be over. Um, had to be if Christ was the author and finisher of the faith. It could not continue to exist if his atonement on the cross paid for all sin that is a spiritual payment that was done. So it wasn't, it, 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 was, it was forever done. It was done past, present, future. It was done, right? So it doesn't mean sin can't have effects on people on this earth. It can and will. But to me, sin is over in God's eyes. Jesus was the mediator who reconciled fallen world to God. So with his shed blood overcoming sin, death, and the grave, in God's eyes, human beings are cleansed of sin, 
unless there's a limited atonement, which people like to talk about, or unless there is an atonement that is kind of applied once people repent. There's that idea that he's paid for it, but it's in a bank vault, and when someone repents, it's taken out, and the blood is sprinkled on them, and they become clean. I happen to believe that when he did the work, the work was done, right? So for everybody, this is tough for people. They want to believe that sin and therefore death continue to reign over upon this world. Sin begins in Genesis and brings with it a curse. Uh, in that day, God says that you do this, you will surely die. That was it. If you rebel against me, you will surely die. There's the sin, there's the punishment. But in Revelation, sin has been put down. Death is no more. There's no more sighing, dying, crying, moaning, groaning, or pain. The former things are passed away. Revelation 21, 4 through 5. So in Genesis, we have the introduction of sin and all that it brings. You will surely die with, at the end of Revelation, the, the other bookend, that the former things are passed away, you see. Now, people, again, there's some who say, I think it's happened, that's me. In a spiritual sense, I think that's happened. And there's others who say, I'm waiting for it to happen so I can be part of that kingdom once it comes and oh, it will be so joyful. It's up to you how you're gonna think about it. Uh, so we note that the most of the fulfillment passages in Revelation are taken from chapters 21 and 22. That is when all the, all the stuff we're reading about now are things that are coming upon. He's seen the vision. It's what's going to come upon the world and wipe out that age, not the world, the area, and wipe out that age. But at the end, chapter 21, 22, uh, 20, part of 20, it starts to tell us this is now what it's going to look like. When you read those chapters and when we get to them, if you see them through spiritual eyes, you'll understand that it's a spiritual setting. It is not a literal material kingdom here upon the earth. Many people are under the impression that those two chapters are the final chapters of everything. That when we get to that place, when those chapters have application, that's when Jesus will have the real victory. That's when God will be reconciled to those on the world who believed on him, not to everybody. That's when Satan will be cast into the lake of fire, and et cetera, et cetera. So it's understandable when we look at the world around us why there are people who are saying this stuff couldn't have happened. There's no way that the way it reads at the end of Revelation 22 and 21 and part of 20, there's no way that that's real. I mean, we don't live in a world like that. But if you look into the lives and hearts of people who have come to know God through faith by the Spirit, that description, those descriptions in the last two and a half chapters of Revelation do apply. They do apply. We are part of the New Jerusalem. We are in the city of peace. We do walk on streets paved with gold, but it's all spiritual in its application. Uh, so as mentioned in Genesis 3:1, Satan appears on the scene for the first time. In Revelation chapter 20, 7 through 10, he is seen for the last time. Because I believe Christ has had the total victory over these things, I believe that chapter 20, 21, 22 have been fulfilled. When that stance is taken, what happens is you become free from all the material manipulations 
that religious people and churches can heap upon you and you become free and realize that you belong to a spiritual place that you are uh, a member of here while you're alive in the flesh and when you die will be part of there. It is a very hopeful message. It's a message that says, my goodness, he did have the victory. We don't have to worry about everybody. We can walk in freeness. We don't have to worry about every single failure. And because if we happen to sin tonight, tomorrow morning when he returns, I'm going to be left behind. You don't have to belong to all that. I would never teach this ever in the world as a means to be different, as a means to help people escape from reality. If the Bible was clearly teaching futurism, I would be pushing it down your throat and we would do campus in a very different way. We would be doing communion. We would be doing a lot of uh, stuff to keep people in line. We would make sure that people were prepared for his coming. We would do church like Catholicism and Mormonism and the, and the Southern Baptists. And like many churches will do, we would teach as if sin is not dead. We would teach as if you can get yourself in a place where it, you're in serious trouble. We would continue on with that. But if it's fulfilled, then all we have is joy in him and trust in him and the reliance upon him and what he has had the victory over. And that gives us the freedom to love others and the freedom to not be burdened. And that's really what the kingdom is about if you start to look at it realistically. So again, in Genesis 3, 2, 4, uh, 23, 24, Adam and Eve are driven from the face of God but in Revelation 21, 22, man apparently beholds God's glorious face. So we have the bookends operating and giving us pro prophecy and, and situations of falling to fulfillment in a spiritual sense. Revelation 22, 4 says, And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. This isn't literal stuff. You're going to have God's name, Yahweh. You're going to have Jesus. You're going to have his name in your mind is what that means. There shall be no night there. Remember, first chapter, first, uh, there was darkness. No night there. And they need no candle, neither light of the sun. Remember in the material uh, creation, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created the stars and the firmament, and he created the sun and the moon and all that stuff. Here in the fulfillment chapter, there will be no light of the sun for the Lord God shall give them light and they shall reign forever and ever that's a spiritual thing here we aren't talking about light that we see with our natural eyes in fact it would probably burn our natural eyes right out of our natural heads it is a state of spiritual existence in the glory of God material creation spiritual creation right finally some Christians teach that Genesis, and this one is my pet peeve. Genesis begins with a wedding. Then they point out that Revelation ends with a wedding. Remember that? How I'm emphasizing that word wedding, wedding, wedding. We just performed a wedding in here, by the way. It was an actual wedding. Was it a marriage? No, no, it was not a marriage. It was a wedding ceremony. Why did the couple get married three hours ago? Because they had gotten... Uh, married a year ago 
but they didn't get a certificate from the state. And the bride's father was angry and has been on her case ever since for not having a certificate from the state. So they asked me, can we come with the certificate? Will you perform the wedding and sign off so that we have this paper to show that we are truly married? And so in the thing, I described how my, I have no authority. I have no ability to do anything. I could jump around, go waka, waka, waka. You're married, and it's as good as someone who says, dearly beloved. It doesn't matter, you see, because in the first chapter of Genesis, in spite of what every pastor seems to teach, there was not a wedding. There was a marriage. There's a difference, you see. It's incorrect terminology, and let me explain why it's important relative to the book of Revelation. And the marriage, never says wedding, the marriage of Christ to his church, the bride, the church. In the Garden of Eden, there is a marriage. It occurred when God created woman out of Adam, out of man, and the two were seen as one. That was a marriage. God did not stand in front of them as pastors seem to want to say and go, walk, walk, now let me sign your paper. He did not do that. The marriage was when he took Adam and he made a woman from his side and the two were one flesh. That is it right there. No wedding ceremony, but marriage in the actual and literal sense when the two were from one. There it is. People want to argue. I go right to Abraham. You guys are probably tired of hearing this. And Abraham's wife, Sarah, says, hey, man, I can't get pregnant. Take Hagar. And he took her to a preacher, and the preacher went, quack, quack, signed the document, and they were married. No. He took her into his tent, and the two became one, and that was the marriage that God saw them in. There's nothing about wedding ceremonies in Scripture. It's all whether the two have had koinonia. That means that the two become one. From that word koinonia, we get communion, which we take the same bread together, and we are one by the bread and wine we all ingest. From that, we get the word coitus, which is talking about sexual intercourse between a husband and a wife. That is the two becoming one. That is the marriage, you see. The same thing with the marriage of the lamb and his bride. He, the lamb, and his bride become one. Through what? Obviously not through sexual relations. They become, because there's male and female in the bride of Christ, but there's, there's really neither male nor female in the bride of Christ. It's his bride by virtue of there being communion with them spiritually. That is who is his bride. Those are his companions spiritually. His help meet, you see. The, the first material couple, Eve was Adam's help meet. And so we have that same picture going on with the conclusion chapter in Revelation. So of this we read in Revelation 19, 7 through 9, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come, not the wedding. And his wife has made herself ready. 
She's made herself ready to be one with the Lamb, to unite with him in the most unifying manner possible by and through the Spirit, through that koinonia. Paul in Galatians 3.28 astutely says that in Christ there's neither male nor female. That's an important caveat to remember for the bride of Christ, right? That there's neither male or female. Because if, that, if there were male and females in the bride of Christ, and Christ marries the males and the females, we got a problem theologically. If I was a homosexual, I would harp on that one if that wasn't in Scripture. But it is in Scripture. It is. There's neither male nor female in the bride of Christ, right? Because it is a spiritual body that is united to him. These things make sense. If you don't, if you don't allow them in, you begin to get all kinds of crazy ideas, including that weddings are marriages and all the other stuff. So this is an allusion to the fact that we become one with the Lord spiritually. Men too. I think it was, uh, could have been Bonhoeffer, who said, in Christ we are all female. It's a little more gross, but what it means is he enters into the human heart of both genders. He is the male in the, as the bride of Christ. He comes into us as a male would with his bride. So it's not by mistake that our word for communion is the same derivative word where we get uh, 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 coitus. Let us be clear, yet again, the material is done over and shaken. So when we are looking for the bride to be a material church that Jesus is going to come and reign over the earth with, we have lost it. We've missed it. It's all spiritual. With his bride being spiritual, him being a resurrected being, we are speaking of heavenly, unshakable things, not carnal, earthly things that were established in the book of Genesis. The marriage of the Lamb is his becoming one with his church, which the book of Revelation is written and aimed to as a means to prepare that bride for his coming to take her. You got to understand, that's what it is. That church is being prepared by the apostles to be the bride for Christ to return and pull out of the fire of the destruction that's coming out. The book of Revelation is there to tell them, hang on, this is coming. I, Christ is coming to take his bride or to take his church. And the church had apostles over it. The church has to have apostles over it to guide it, to make sure that that church, that bride, makes it through the wilderness and can be taken by her groom, all right? Very important. If he has come and taken his bride, if he has come and taken his church, and the book is fulfilled, what the heck are we, chopped liver? What, do, I mean, aren't we part of the bride? We're not. Aren't we the part of the church? No, that church was the church that he established and the gates of hell would not prevail against it and the gates of hell have not prevailed against that church. His apostles made sure that it got guided through everything that happened and he took it. The gates of hell, let me tell you something, post 70 AD have ravaged the church. The church has been ravaged. There's no bride waiting for him to take. What is there? There's a body now of believers. Are, were the believers in the early church who were the bride part of the body? They are. The body's always there. But we are his body now. And Paul goes to great descriptions to describe how we function as a body. There in the body are so many different parts. 
Stop trying to make the toe do what the heart does. Stop trying to make the elbow as important as the eyeball. Stop trying to, or as unimportant. Let every part of that body grow, be what it is, do what it does, function freely according to how it's made, and not bring it all in to become the singular church or bride that was described for the early church when Jesus came to take it. I suggest to you that the term church related to all churches prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, in and out of Judea. If they were gathering in the name of Christ, they were part of his church. I would suggest that the bride of Christ was called out of those churches, and they were the true uh, believers. They were the ones who really were. Just because you were in the church didn't mean you were part of the bride, okay? And they were the ones who made it through the tribulation. They were the ones the gates of hell did not prevail against. And the wrapping up of that age, Jesus then ate and drank with them at the marriage ceremony. He lifted them up. Jerusalem's destroyed. Judea's wiped out. Galilee's snuffed. Uh, everything has been scorched around that. The, the Romans have done it. But he took his bride, and in that day, he drank with them again at the wedding ceremony. Do you remember when he said that? Revelation is speaking of the bride of Christ, describes her in the following way. It says at verse 8, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he said unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. You want to take that and apply it to something we're waiting for? You've just, you are, you've spun your wheels for nothing. You've just, you've, you've wasted part of your life in my estimation. Does God allow it? Sure. He lets us have all sorts of delusions. But that's the context. If that was the church and they were the bride, who and what are believers doing since the 70 AD consummation? We, like all before us, even all the way back to the apostles, are part of his body. So were people today. We're not his church. We're not his bride, but we are part of his body. And this body has been growing. Look at this. Look at the human body. Christ is the head. And look at that body of Christ. Cells slough off. Things regenerate. It's, it's a body that doesn't die. It's a spiritual body. Nails continue to grow. They get clipped. Uh, it matures. Uh, all of those applications can be to the body of Christ that is here, and I would suggest it's never going away. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but I don't think it is. It lives resurrected from the material grave of sin and death, abiding and thriving through the Spirit. There are people in the Catholic Church sitting there today, there are Hindus, there are Muslims, there are Christians, there are this, there are Mormons, there are that, who are part of that body. Some of them may not even know how they're part, but they are spiritually part of that body. It's up to God to decide. It's up to him to decide. We don't have to worry about, about that material church being ready for Christ to come and take his bride. He's done that. The body just keeps growing with believers coming in and through his blood. If you're part of the body of Christ, his blood is coursing through you and cleansing you as a believer, no matter where you are and what you're doing, you see? Is one better than the other to be a part of the bride back then, part of the narrative that we read about, or to be part of the body today? I don't know. God's not a respecter of persons. Uh, 
all fulfill him reconciling the world to himself by and through his only begotten son. All of it was part of his plan. So there are some ideas presented in the bookend of Genesis and the bookend of Revelation. Of course, if someone believes that Revelation is still being fulfilled, then like I said, we're still in the church. And just let me say this clearly, I've said it before, if I'm wrong, if I am wrong about preterism, and my views, I've been overcome by a, a demon, and I've been preaching wrongly, and the Bible is true in a futuristic sense, then um, we have to belong to a church that is readying the believers for his imminent return. And we would have to be very focused on sin so that we could be prepared. And we would have to be focused on true leadership. We would have to be focused on having true apostles who were trained and called by Christ Jesus, who give their life for him to be guiding us. That is a biblical tenet. That is what guided the bride. We would have to be. If we didn't have that, and I was convinced that futurism was true, I would say we need to have a church where we have true apostles. Mormons have done it. They're not true apostles. They, they live high on the hog for whatever the heck they do, but uh, that's their choice. But we would have to have apostolic leadership. We note that John the Beloved, apostolic leadership, was here with us until the end. And so lacking that uh, and not believing that, we then have this other approach to understanding it. All right, let's get to our text, chapter 10. It contains a record of a sublime vision of an angel, which from this juncture, John sees coming out of heaven, and he's disclosing new scenes in what is yet to occur. Now, we're gonna talk next week, and I'm gonna get into it. This was not just an angel. Every commentary I looked at about futurism in the book of Revelation describes this angel as connected to the seven trumpet angels, every one of them. Uh, without question, I'll challenge you right now, this was Christ. This was the angel of the Lord because of how he is described. Without question, using the Bible to give us our supports, this was Christ doing something. John calls him an angel. We'll talk about why would he do that when he could have said it's Jesus Christ. But every other commentator says this was just another angel doing another part. There is no way when we read the scripture that that could be true. Uh, the, the effects of the sixth trumpet are still unfolding, even through chapter 10 till we get to verse 15 of chapter 11. And there's an interval between all these scenes, and that's what chapter 10 is kind of telling, telling us about. The angel appears with a small volume that's an open volume in his hand. And the book is not closed and sealed like the one in chapter 5. It's open so it could be read. And this is telling us something about the book. It has some import that it's open and it's in his hand. The angel sets a foot on the sea. The angel sets a foot on the land. And uh, that's very symbolic. And he cries with a proclamation of a loud voice that's like a roaring lion. And this cry is responded by thunders that John says that he hears. And he says, I was about to make a record of what the thunders were saying, and I was told not to. And for some reason not stated here, he was commanded not only to not disclose what it said, but he never tells us. That's interesting. 
At this point, the angel lifts his hand to heaven and swears by the great, great creator that uh, all the things that time should happen, but not yet, that there should be, actually the Greek version is there should be time no longer. That's what this angel says to the heavens. We'll talk about that when we get to it next week. And all this seems to be that God is about to reign on earth. This seems to be the culmination of God's spiritual kingdom coming. And chapter 10 is telling us what is, what's happening as these trumpets are unfolding before us still. This is the purpose, that one foot on the sea, the Gentiles, one foot on the land, the nation of Israel, and uh, the book in his hand, and yelling out, this is the end of time, and the thunders echoing. This seems to be the establishment of that spiritual kingdom upon the earth. We'll talk about that, whether that's true or not. John is commanded uh, to then eat the book, and we're going to read about how that is uh, found also in other parts of the Old Testament, to eat the scroll, Ezekiel, that happens with him. Jeremiah is told to eat a book. Uh, same thing here. We have that fulfilled, and we can talk about what it means. And then that takes us to chapter 11. So one verse of chapter 10, then we're going to wrap it up for today. First one, John says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, another mighty angel clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face were as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Those descriptions are completely different than any angel ever gets in Scripture. This is a different being who John describes here are the attributes of Christ. But for some reason, people don't seem to include that. So remember a couple of things. This section is speaking of seven trumpets being blown, which is a signal, as we've talked about in the Old Testament, of royalty arriving and of war coming down. What blew those seven trumpets? Angels blew the seven trumpets. These angels described in Revelation 8 are simply called angels that were given trumpets. But so here it seems, according to the other commentators, that that's what's happening. It's another heavenly angel doing something. I don't think so. John says, and I saw, I had another vision. But he adds a few things unique to his description of this angel. And let's break them down. The first thing he says, and I saw another mighty angel. The word mighty can just as easily be used to say strong in scripture, and it's used in conjunction with he heavenly angels. We find it using, used twice only in the book of Revelation. Only twice in all of scripture is mighty assigned to an angel, both in the book of Revelation here and in Revelation 18, which we'll get to later. We remember that while angels in heaven are certainly a real creation of God, the term angel can also mean messenger. It can just mean angelos, someone who was sent. So because we know that Jesus is called the angel of the Lord in scripture, actually called that, for him to call Jesus uh, mighty angelos here is not out of character with what the scripture has said before. So the messenger was mighty. Number two, he came down from heaven. Now I realize that heavenly angels all come down from heaven, right? But this mighty messenger that came down from heaven is seen 
different than all others. It's not by chance that all through scripture, Jesus is described as coming down from heaven. So there's another clue as to why I think it's Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 47, the first man is of the earth earthly. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And that line is used to describe the Lord all through. The third point is this angel, this messenger mighty coming down from heaven was clothed with a cloud. And we know from the Hebrews that God is often described by them as riding in the clouds, as having the clouds around him. Even Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, 30, speaking of his return, and then shall the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall the tribes of the earth mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So we have a biblical connection to this, John says, I saw a mighty angel descending from heaven in the cloud, from the, excuse me, with a cloud, with the cloud. And here uh, Jesus says, listen, the Son of Man is coming in the clouds of heaven. We remember to Pilate, Jesus said before he was crucified, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So there's two references to Christ and clouds. We know that in the book of Acts that when he ascends into heaven and the apostles are looking up the angel says what are you doing he ascended up and through the clouds he says he's going to come back in the very same way through in the clouds so that's the third thing that we can link this to being christ and of course in the first chapter of revelation at verse 7 it says behold he comes in the clouds that's the fourth connection in scripture where Jesus is said to come with the clouds. So when I read John say, I saw a mighty angel descending from heaven, riding with a cloud, I say Jesus. And we haven't even gotten to the best supports. All right? So, and a rainbow was upon his head. Now, this angel is one radical angel for to him to have a rainbow around his head, over his head, and to be riding on a cloud and to be called mighty, we recall that in Revelation chapter four, John saw into heaven and when he saw into heaven, he said, I see one sitting on the throne and there was a rainbow round about the throne. So we know that that is emblematic of God. It's around his throne. And now we see one riding from heaven with a uh, rainbow around his head. That is another biblical symbolism that this is not just a typical angel. Um, with Christ being the head of the church and the head of man, it seems that the rainbows of revelation would, that were around the throne of God would certainly be around his head as he descends to bring his kingdom to earth. So I think chapter 10 is in part telling us this is Jesus coming back to establish his kingdom. That's what it's describing. And his face, number five, fifth uh, tie to Christ, and his face was, as it were, the sun. Uh, we have a heavenly vision here mirroring yet another event related to Jesus' life. You remember what it was? Where is Jesus uh, shine forth uh, brightly as the sun? On the Mount of Transfiguration, remember? Peter, James, John are sitting there looking, and uh, Moses and Elijah show up, and it says in Matthew 17, and he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun. That's almost a verbatim quote that John says here about this, angel's coming, this angel coming down through the clouds. His face did shine as the sun. So there is another connection to it. Paul taps into this characteristic of Jesus when he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, listen closely, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness 
has shined in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we have the Mount of Transfiguration. We have Paul saying uh, uh, this, that it was going to be in the glory of his face. And we have here in Revelation, John saying that this angel's face with a rainbow head riding with a cloud shined like the sun. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Now you might say, you're really beating this to death. I'm beating it to death because it's not being said it's Jesus. I, I don't, maybe I missed the, the commentators who said it's Jesus. And the devil led me to read all about the commentators who are saying it's not. But I can't believe that none of them are saying it's Jesus. It's clearly him showing foot on the Gentiles, foot on the land of Jerusalem, book in hand, eat it, John. This is the kingdom coming upon the earth. And so I'm setting you up for next week as we study the rest of the chapter. No typical angel, folk. And then we read, and feet as pillars of fire. That's another giveaway. Third one about, uh, fifth one about this angel. Uh, Daniel 10.6 is not talking about Jesus probably, but it is a picture or type of him. And this is what it says. I'm not gonna tell you who it's talking about because it's gonna take me too long, but it says, his body also was likened to burl and his face is the appearance of lightning and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and feet in the color of polished brass. Feet, again, color of polished brass, and the voice of his words like a voice of a multitude. That was Daniel's description. Speaking of Jesus, we do read of a fulfillment of Daniel 10.6 in Revelation 2.18, which says, unto the angel of the church of Thyatira write, these things says the Son of God, who has eyes like unto the flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Fine brass looks means it's polished and fine, it's glowing as if it were lit underneath by fire. And so his feet are described as that, both in Revelation as a picture in Daniel, and here we have John seeing an angel with feet that are as if fire. Before we leave, why does scripture describe him here and other apparent heavenly beings as being bright and white and whose feet are often described, at least Jesus, as being on fire or a br polished brass that's like hot metal to the touch. I'm convinced that in order to dwell in the midst of God, uh, who is a consuming fire, beings must be able to endure his inconceivable energy. It's all speculation. It's just a postulation on my part, wrapping it up. But he, God, is like a billion, trillion, sons coalesced into his presence and but spiritually and for anything to survive it has to be equipped clothed in righteousness covered in the blood of jesus it cannot survive that state in any event it seems that whatever abides sort of becomes translucent it just becomes it's just this thing that can exist in the presence of god and that's why those who won't abide in his presence immediately, it says they will perish. That means, it doesn't mean completely be lost. It means that they will suffer destruction, a pulamai, a rubbing away of whatever is in them that cannot abide in the presence and glory of God. Jesus fully could abide. And so he fully comes out of that presence, fully immersed in this light, fully representing fully all of it 
but there will, others will suffer loss, Scripture seems to say. They will perish. They will, they will suffer destruction um, until that is, is uh, rubbed away like a touchstone upon them. Final one, and he had in his hand a little open book. And there are a number of these ideas passed around about what this book is. You may have an idea of what you think this little book is, but remember, now we have this angel. I say it's Lord Jesus. He's descending. John sees him. He's got a cloud on his head. He's got a rainbow on his head. He's got a cloud around him. He is coming down with a little book in his hand. His feet are like fire. He speaks like a lion, and he puts one foot in the sea. He puts one foot on land, and he takes this little book, and he says, John, eat it. What do you think it is? Let's wrap up talking about the book. For starters, the angel, John says he has a little book in his hand. I tend to think that whatever is coming down on this earth was not an actual physical representation of Christ in his body, but was a giant of, of what he is in human form. One foot in the sea, one foot on land. And the book was little because it was in a giant hand. I tend to think of it that way. I don't know why, could be wrong, but, or it could have been a regular human-sized Jesus or angel coming down with a book that was really little. <laughs> but one way or another, this being had an ability to have a foot in the sea and a foot on land, showing dominance over everything. And some think that this is the book that the dead will be judged out of at the great white throne. And some think that because John is told, eat this book, that it's the Bible. And that when John eats it, he says it tastes good going down, but later we're gonna read next week, it gives him a stomach ache. And so some suggest that this is the future, this is the book of Revelation, it's a little book. You're gonna eat this and you're gonna take it into you and you're gonna regurgitate it back out and it's gonna be bitter to you because of what you're gonna read. Either one, we don't know. What we do know in Ezekiel 3, one through three, is God tells Ezekiel as a picture for this. Moreover, he said, son of man, eat thou that thou findest, eat this roll, scroll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So there's a connection between God having Ezekiel eat the words and then going to speak. And so maybe that's what we're seeing here in this imagery that John is being asked in his vision by uh, the angel or by Jesus to eat and speak. And, John, and Ezekiel says, so I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, son of man, cause thy belly to eat and fill thy bowels with this roll that I may give unto thee. Then I did eat it and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. Additionally, Jeremiah 15, 16 it says, O Lord, thou knowest, remember me and visit me, revenge me, my persecutors, take not away thy long suffering, for I know that for thy sake I have suffered rebuke. The words were found and I did eat them. And thy words was unto me a joy and a rejoicing in my heart, for I am called by thy name. So perhaps it's the book of judgment, perhaps it's the, the book that was sealed and is now unsealed, perhaps it's the Bible, perhaps it's a prophetic book that was sweet going down, and it contains God's wonderful plan for the millennial kingdom, for heaven, for the judgment that was coming, for whatever we don't know. The fact is that this mighty messenger has it in his hand, it's open book, he has John eat it, 
He tells him that this book is in fact the revelations that God has given Jesus to give to John that he is gonna ask him to either write or repeat or share with others. We'll leave it off there for today. Questions, comments, insights. <laughs> Patricio. Okie dokie. Um, this is Patrick. I have a question. I have a question. Um, you said that we're not the church anymore. It's wordsmithing. We can call ourselves the church. Because doesn't the body of Christ make the church? Is that what the church is, the body of Christ? Uh -uh. I think from my understanding of scripture, the church which the gates of hell would not prevail against was taken. The body will, will never be... Uh, will never be overcome by anything. The body of Christ cannot be defiled. It's made of believers. But the church had to be protected by apostles and everything that was going down. And Christ came and took those who were truly his and they were his bride. The church was the early church, I believe, to 70 AD. The bride was the faithful and elect of that church. And we from now on are the body. Everybody who was in the early church and everybody who was part of the bride are part of the body. You get it? But I think when we read scripture, if it's been fulfilled, they were the church and he took his bride. Interesting. Yeah. That's think about lot, it. That's a lot to take in. Test it with scripture. I have another question really quick. Yeah. Uh, if sin is no more, then how come I still sin every day? It's a great question. Um, Christ took care of it, but I mean... The judgment for sin from God to you is no more. Hmm. The, the consequences for sin, sure. If you commit fornication, you get a girl pregnant, there's a consequence. You get the clap, that's a consequence. You can't change that. Has God forgiven you through the blood of his son 2,000 years ago? Yes. Do you have to worry about repenting for God to love you again because you got the clap? No. You just say, God, help me get cured of the clap. But I know you love me and have forgiven me because of your son shedding his blood yeah. for me 2,000 years ago. That's what I mean. So doesn't that leave room for anybody can just do whatever and God will forgive me? There, it's not that God will forgive. God has forgiven. It's a foregone conclusion. He has done it. Because let me tell you something. If he hasn't, we are in serious trouble. We are on a hamster wheel of we are in big trouble from what you even thought today, Patrick, from Provo to here in the car, you were so diabolical in his presence, he should have wiped you out. But because of his son, God is at peace. Now, are there consequences? Will you wreck your life with sin? Sure, sure. Is he, um, is he bummed when we become uh, full of the flesh? Of course, I would, sure, he wants what's good for us, but he has forgiven past, present, and future. You didn't see the halo over my head when I walked in? No. Oh, okay. I saw horns. <laughs> but when you spoke of Jesus, I saw a halo up here. There's the, there's the paradox. The horns were holding the halo up. Anything else? Insights? All right, you guys, let's pray.
Lord, the discussion on sin and forgiveness is tough with repentance, and, and so we pray your spirit to guide and teach us by your word. Uh, but help us to be free from the uh, hamster wheel of trying to earn your love and trying to earn your uh, forgiveness and trying to get you to um, bring us back into fellowship because of our failures. Lord, we are saved by grace through faith upon your son, his shed blood. It's done, it's over. With that liberty, we pray that you will help us move forward in love for others, in love and, and being grateful for what you've done, losing our propensity to do evil and to do wrong, knowing that you have forgiven us of all things through your son. Lord, we pray for those who are struggling, for Tony, that she will help to see, the, see she needs what her needs are so she can be safe wherever she is, and pray for Brent to follow and listen to our Lord's will for him. And we pray for our sister this morning, uh, Lillian and Joe, and the sale of their house. And we pray for those uh, within the sound of my voice who have difficulties and problems that aren't listed here, which are all of us, and that you will make your presence known and you will let that unconditional love, grace-filled love, not predicated on our works, not on our righteousness, not on our repentance, predicated upon you loving us so much you gave us your son, that you came and he came and he, he fulfilled and finished and had the victory over sin and death, that we can in faith walk and then be open to share this love you have so freely given us with others, especially those who bug us and who trouble us, that make us lose our faith and help and that cause us to want to hurt them and things. Lord, help us to love these people because we can't do it through our flesh. It's an impossibility. So we seek you, Lord Jesus. We need you in our lives by your spirit. We pray you'll open up our hearts to your truths and, and not rely upon religion and men and me and, and things. We'll read your word. We'll listen to the promptings of the spirit and the fruit thereof, which is joy and peace and love and long-suffering and temperance and all those good things that the Spirit brings. Help us to live by that. But at the same time, help us to be full of truth. Never back away from your truths. And so equip us as we move forward now. Be better Christians till we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.